Hello! Hello, everybody! Welcome to the Lunarverse. I'm Dr. Charles Liu. I really would prefer it if you'd call me Chuck. It is so much fun to be here today, and I'm really glad to start off, as always, by introducing our co-host, Alan Liu. Hey, Alan, how's it going? Oh, it's gone pretty good. <laughs> oh, wonderful. Have you learned anything new and interesting lately? Yeah, I've been reading about um, error-correcting codes, which are like ways you can add extra information to a message to like make it fix itself if something's going wrong. Whoa, an app that fixes its own code if it's messed up. Yeah, yeah, it's like binary data that'll can determine if like a bit's been flipped somewhere. Yeah. I wish I had that when I was typing and creating code for graduate school. Oh my gosh, how much pain and suffering that would have saved me. <laughs> <laughs> and it is a great pleasure to introduce our special guest today, Dr. Vivian Baldessari. Hi, Vivian. Hi, it's such a pleasure to be here with you and get to talk about astronomy today. Oh, the pleasure is all ours, Vivian. Vivian comes to us from Washington State University, where she is a professor of astronomy and physics. Um, and we're having a great time today. We're going to talk about your science mostly, but other cool stuff as well. And your science specifically is, if you would tell us. Be happy to. I search for intermediate mass black holes in dwarf galaxies. So these are black holes that are maybe 50,000 times the mass of our sun in galaxies that are a few percent the mass of our Milky Way. Whoa, I know that that's going to be fun to talk about. Oh, can't wait to do that. Um, it's going to be awesome. Thank you, Vivian. Uh, let's start today, as we so often do, with today's joyfully cool cosmic thing. Yeah. Uh, did I get the order right, Alan? Did I, did I actually? Time that that's, the, that's the order that we usually use. Yeah. Okay. As opposed <laughs> to the joyfully cosmic cool thing or the cool cosmically the cool joyful cosmically thing. cosmically Yeah, there's lots of good stuff. <laughs> All those things work. are... Yeah, they're, they're all true. It's just, you know, that's not what we're talking about. Well, today, what I'd like to talk about is something that was just recently published. It is an X-ray photo combined with a Hubble Space Telescope photo, creating composite of an X-ray binary system in a nearby starburst galaxy. I love this picture for numerous reasons, because first of all, X-ray binaries are neat and they're not very common at all. Second of all, I love starburst galaxies, and, and many of you know my research focuses on things that happen after starbursts. And, and three, it's in a dwarf galaxy nearby the Milky Way. So Vivian, uh, you know this system well, right? NGC 4214, and, and tell us about this X-ray binary and so forth. Yeah, so this is a little uh, starburst galaxy, and this paper presented um, a really interesting X-ray binary system, which is when you have a compact object, which is either a, um, a stellar mass black hole or a neutron star that is being fed by a star. Um, and in this case, it's being fed by a very high mass star. And that results in a very bright system that in this case, they've detected a whole bunch of X-rays from with Chandra. Um, and then wow. they've also used Hubble to find the individual star that is feeding the black hole, which is amazing. Amazing. They could actually see the star itself from millions of light years away. Uh, I, that's just the technology continues to improve all the time. And it just just so remarkable. But one thing also I would say that is that sometimes 
uh, we're looking at the newest stuff, like for example, JWST, which is a tremendously amazing telescope, of course, and they're wonderful images, but we don't realize that the old tech is still amazing. I mean, Hubble was launched in 1990 uh, and, and Chandra fun. was launched right around the same time too, right? Uh, these yeah. these telescopes are, are three decades old, and yet they're still crunching away, making amazing discoveries with them. Uh, is so much fun, and, and I'm, I'm very very excited for that. So, now your your work, Vivian, really kind of started with these two observatories, right? Uh, the Chandra X-ray Observatory and and the Hubble Space Telescope. Yeah, I use the Chandra X-ray Observatory quite a lot to find um, black holes that are, in this case, more massive than um, the one that we might be dealing with in NGC 4214. Uh, and it's kind of funny because in my work, when we find X-rays from a dwarf galaxy, we're often trying to rule out the presence of something like this X-ray binary um, and oh. determine whether there's an accreting more massive black hole there. So these are X-ray binaries are, are sort of a contaminant for my, <laughs> for my research. <laughs> Foreign contaminant. I'm sorry. I still remember that line from Wally. Uh, I just have too much. Oh, that was Mo, right? Yeah. That was Mo's internal sensor system determining right. that, that Wally's dirt was, uh, was a foreign, foreign contaminant. contaminant. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So, so really one astronomer's uh, foreign contaminant is another astronomer's cosmic treasure, really, right? So yes, we're trying to do exactly. that sort of thing, but, but it's fun. So, so you found your share of X-ray binaries that happened to be in the way of your search for uh, intermediate mass black holes, right? Yeah. Well, the, the thing is that you can't always tell just from the X-ray emission alone. You'll often find uh, an X-ray point source. So just some bright X-ray source at the center of a galaxy with some mm -hmm. brightness. And you don't know whether that's from a really small black hole that's eating really fast or a bigger black hole that's eating slow. And a lot of what I do is trying to pull together other pieces of that puzzle to determine what we're actually dealing with in any given galaxy. So I bring oh, I in X-ray observations and uh, optical spectroscopy, um, variability information, and try to assemble the, the picture wow. for a whole bunch of different dwarf galaxies to try to constrain uh, this population of intermediate mass. Oh, that's population. really neat. And, and, and it, it clearly is very technical stuff, but, but you were successful, right? I mean, weren't you one of like the first people in the world to have confirmed the existence of such a, an intermediate mass black hole? Uh, I had a, a very exciting result in 2015 when I was a, a second year graduate student, which was um, very Whoa. exciting. <laughs> um, and Jeez. I found a, a 50,000 solar mass black hole in the center of a little dwarf galaxy um, called RGG118. And 50,000 sounds like a big number, but in the, yeah. the realm of black holes that live at the centers of galaxies, it's actually quite small. So for comparison, oh. our Milky Way's black hole is 6 million times the mass Whoa. of our sun's with something much smaller here that pushes yeah. into a very unexplored range in black hole mass. 
Yeah, right. Because right? because when I hear about black holes, I hear about the super massive ones at the centers of big galaxies like the Milky Way, and then I hear about the ones that happen from supernova, which I imagine would be like no more than like a hundred something times the mass of the sun. So then, is that is that accurate? And like, where do these intermediate ones come from? Exactly. Um, so we have our, our stellar mass black holes, which are a few times the mass of the sun to uh, the biggest one is, I think, 150 solar masses, which was um, found by the uh, LIGO facility, the laser interferometer. Oh, yeah. The gravitational wave. Gravitational waves. Wow. Mm-hmm. That's cool. Yeah. And then we have our supermassive black holes that are at the centers of all big galaxies. And those are a million times the mass of the sun and up. And then in between, we really haven't had much evidence for anything. And we're trying to figure out um, if that's because they're largely not there or if they're just very hard to find. Um, Mm -hmm. And whether they're there or not um, and how much they weigh and where they live tells us a lot about how black holes form, what kind of formation pathways are available to us um, and how they grow. So that's the bigger picture of why I'm interested in this population um, besides the mystery. That makes total sense. Um, Let me ask, well, you know what? Before asking the next question, let's see if there's a question from a student uh, for Vivian. Alan, do, do you have a student question? Cool. So the first one is from Lorenzo, who's asking, are stars only found in galaxies? And if not, where else? Oh, I love this question. Um, So stars are generally found um, in galaxies, but there's a few other places where we might find stars. Uh, So some stars live in what we call globular clusters, which are these really, really dense clusters of stars that orbit around galaxies. Um, So any galaxy might have anywhere from a few to a few hundred globular clusters. And um, these tend to have pretty old populations of stars. So we find stars there. Um, And then another cool population of stars that uh, we've found are called hypervelocity stars. Um, And these are stars that have been found in the halo of our galaxy. And they're extremely fast, as you might guess from their name, hypervelocity. And they can have speeds up to thousands of kilometers per second. And these stars get sped up by basically slingshotting around the black hole at the center of our galaxy. And they're now moving so fast that they can escape from the, the gravitational pull of our galaxy. So while most stars are in galaxies or, or clusters, occasionally you get uh, one of these really fascinating stars, <laughs> like a hypervelocity star that is just booking it on its way out. Wow. And uh, wow. at, at some point, we won't be able to see it anymore. But <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah, yeah for, for those of you who are uh, doing the calculation in your head right now, uh, uh, converting from metric to our regular English units, I'll, I'll make it easier for you. A thousand kilometers per second is a little bit more than two million miles an hour. So, oh so boy. when Vivian, you're talking about you know thousands of kilometers per second, we're talking many millions of miles an hour. These guys are zipping along. Wow! Imagine what it must be like to like view the sky from a planet around one of those stars, right? Just like <laughs> oh yeah, there's the, like in our night sky, there's just so many stars, and you have this band of the Milky Way. You just wouldn't have that. It'd be crazy, right? Yeah. 
Just yeah, I don't know if they would retain their planets. Um, hmm. Oh, that's there. a good point. Yeah, they must be zipping through so fast that uh, anything that's orbiting around them might just get lost. Yeah. Oh, and then we wind up with rogue planets. Oh, ho, ho. that sounds like fun <laughs> to think of that. That's cool. Uh, yeah. yeah, that's neat. That's so cool. The disc of the Milky Way, like right. instead of just a band, that'd be crazy. So, so these orbits of these hypervelocity stars that are like slingshotting around, right? They, they're really highly elliptical, right? They they come really close to the central supermassive black hole and then get zipped way out, so that they literally escape the entire Milky Way galaxy. Yeah, that's right. So they're very mm. very stretched out. <laughs> yeah, um, you know the that reminds me the Chandra X-ray Observatory also has that kind of stretched out orbit, right? I mean, it's highly, highly elliptical. And, and I don't remember why it's that way, because the Hubble, the Hubble Space Telescope, for example, orbits almost in a perfect circle. And it's only about 400 miles or so up from the sur- uh, 400 kilometers or so up from the surface or, or something like that, 400 miles. Anyway, it, I'll check it out real quick. Check it out. Yeah. Yeah. Find out. It, it's several hundred miles above the surface of the Earth, and it goes pretty much in a circle. Uh, so it comes around the Earth, you know, once every 90 minutes or so. But Chandra is not like that, right? Yeah, that's right. So Chandra has um, a really highly elliptical orbit. Um, and the reason for that is so that it spends most of its time outside of the Van Allen belts, which are these um, belts around the earth of extremely, of of a lot of charged particles, basically. And so um, Chandra, I think, spends about 80% of its time outside of those uh, bands of charged particles. And so it can serve for most of its orbit when it's outside of those, those belts. So during the 20% of time that's inside the belts, like they provide too much interference and make it so that the X-ray observations are harder. But when they're yeah, above I, them, then you can see yeah. things more clearly. Yeah. That's wow. Pretty cool. that's, that's pretty amazing. One of my favorite telescopes yeah. to work with. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that, it is amazing. And, and if you think about, you know, all the things that have, are orbiting Earth right now, uh, especially those things that have been orbiting for decades, uh, I'd say Chandra is pretty cool. Uh, Hubble, of course, is also pretty cool. Yeah. Uh, and there are a lot of things that are, but but there's a lot of stuff out there, right, Vivian, these days? A lot of things that are just orbiting the Earth. Yeah. And, and things are changing very rapidly. Uh, so we currently have uh, about 8,000 satellites orbiting around, around oh, Earth. Wow. Uh, most of these in relatively low Earth orbit. Um, and most of those at this point are actually Starlink satellites. So these are uh, satellites being launched by, by SpaceX, um, with the goal of Uh of producing global internet coverage. Um, and to give a little context, their plan is to eventually have about 40,000 of these in orbit. Um, so until, until recently we've had a few thousand satellites in orbit, right? We're about to yeah. increase by by quite a lot. Um, wow! And yeah, from from a few thousand to forty thousand. Dang! Right? Yeah, that's and crazy. and Starlink are not the only uh, satellite constellations. They're called that are that are planned. There's others that are planned as well that that would increase that number even more. Um, and astronomers have a lot of concerns about this. Um, yeah. But there, there's concerns beyond uh, those to astronomy. Yeah, no kidding. Um, 
Alan, did you find out uh, how high up the Hubble is? Yeah, yeah. So the Hubble is 333-ish miles or 540 kilometers or so. Um, it's in an orbit that's designed that it could have been reached by the space shuttle. So the space shuttle serviced it a few times. Oh, I see. Um, that's true. So, yeah. The servicing was so important. That's kind of what kept uh, Hubble this amazing up-to-date fire-breathing telescope after all these years right? yeah right yeah so oh, okay so that's about how high up it is that, um, and that's well that's well below the Al- van allen belts i guess most of the time uh and and yeah is that the shuttle into them yeah. because there might be a danger to the people's health right is well vivian are all these starlink satellites like a threat to hubble or the International Space oh. Station, I think, can, can they actually like cause problems for like hitting them or damaging them or anything like that? They they could. So um, one of the things that this number of satellites requires is active communication to avoid collisions. So these satellites oh, yeah. are always talking to one another um, to find out where the other ones are, so they don't collide. Um, but when we have outages, for example, um, if there's a severe solar storm and we need to put the satellites in safe mode, then the risk of collision um, goes up substantially. And the more oh, wow. satellites that we launch, the more that risk goes up. Um, <clears throat> and eventually you can end up with basically a, a chain reaction where you generate debris that then will collide with other things and generate oh. more debris. Um, and you could actually lose entire regions of orbit um, and be unable oh, to launch no. because of the, the risk of collision. So uh, oh, it's, a, it's a very serious issue that um, I think we, we need to be thinking about quite seriously. Yeah, I, yeah. I read recently that like someone had just levied like the first fine for space drunk in like the history really? of like regulation. Wow. Um, I don't remember the details. I'd have to find that. Uh, maybe we can, we can link it in the description or something like that. But I, that's right. what I had read. Um, huh. Yeah, I heard the argument about Starlink is that like because it's sufficiently low down, like if it did start creating this this thing, they call it an ablation cascade or Kessler syndrome, then like it would decay within a matter of like a couple of years as opposed to like staying up for a long time, um, which is maybe a good thing. But on the other hand, even losing like a large chunk of orbit for a couple of years is not a good thing, <laughs> you know, and it would damage no. everything that's already up there. And, wow. and we have that's lots amazing. of other things at that orbit. So Starlink satellites are at a very similar, similar orbital altitude to Hubble. Um, oh no. Plus we also Jeez. don't know the environmental consequences of depositing that much aluminum into our atmosphere. <laughs> uh, so oh, no. mostly aluminum Jeez. and if you're burning up 42,000 Starlink satellites in, in low Earth orbit, uh, we we don't know what the environmental consequences of that are. Yeah, let's hope it doesn't come to that. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So, so that's amazing. What are the details, uh, Alan? Do you, do you know the details of the fine? Was it like a big company, a little yeah. company? So um, we, we if you look at the, uh, the information that we just got here, um, it's a dish network. Uh, so the satellite television company. Uh, uh, yes. So they uh, failed to remove a particular uh, satellite that has fallen into disrepair, I guess, um, or, or just oh. become obsolete or something like that. Maybe run out of uh, maneuvering field. It's you know a few reasons. So they, they just stop using a satellite, and they just left it there. So they just left it there. It's kind of like like if your muffler falls off your old car in the highway, and you just leave it there. 
yeah, yeah, it's kind of like that. And so they were supposed to move it into an orbit that was like farther away from the orbit that anyone wanted to use. It was supposed to be 300 kilometers away from that original orbit, but they only mm. left it 120 kilometers away. And so they oh. FCC gave them a fine for that. Well, I, I sure hope that other people get fined as well. But, yeah, I hope it's a good precedent, uh, you know, because we, yeah. we got we to gotta take care of space. There's There's a lot of space out there, but there's not all that much orbital space immediately above the earth you know <laughs> so yeah because those things yeah. are zipping around so fast that each one takes up like a whole big region you just can't go near wow oh man okay let's 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 uh alan let's go to a, a student question so that we can be more cheerful uh, and, yeah. and, and find some about other cool stuff yeah so the other question we have today and this sort of goes back to something uh from earlier in the conversation which is uh, from Adrian, who is asking, how can tiny black holes swallow supergiant stars? Aren't they too big? I love this question. Uh, this is fantastic. Yes, so black holes are um, relatively small, right, for the amount of mass that they contain. And it's a really good question to wonder how something so small can consume something really large. Uh, and it's basically thanks to um, tidal disruption, which is what it's called when the gravitational pull on one side of something is stronger than the gravitational pull on the other side. So, so sort of like the tides in our ocean then. Like, yeah. Because the ocean's being stretched at different rates. So tides, this is tides happening near a black hole. Mm -hmm. Holy moly. Yeah. So at some point, as the star is getting close to the black hole, the difference in gravity on one side and the other side will be so great that the star will start to get stripped apart um, and basically pulled into like a, a spaghetti noodle. <laughs> and so Whoa. it will stream um, into a, a disk around the black hole and then feed it that way. Um, and sometimes wow. this can be a really... Uh, great way of finding black holes that we don't know are there otherwise, because sometimes uh -huh. you'll get a really unlucky star that wanders close to the supermassive black hole at the center of a galaxy, and you'll see a huge flare as this star gets tidally pulled apart. Um, and so uh -huh. the way that you can find black holes that are otherwise quiet when they just happen to get a, a lucky meal across their path. How long does it take for one of those flares to happen? Is it like a matter of days, a matter of hours? Yeah, it usually happens on a time scale of weeks to months. You'll see the okay. rise in brightness um, over a few days or, or a couple of weeks. And usually we think that the faster it rises in, in brightness, the smaller the black hole is. Um, and I was okay. actually um, part of a a paper recently that found a black hole at the center of a dwarf galaxy from one of these tidal uh -huh. disruption events. So oh, that wow. can be really, really great for finding, uh, we hope yeah. in the future, intermediate mass black holes. Oh, so that that's where the time domain astronomy comes in. Then you're you're watching something, and for a few weeks it suddenly gets brighter for no reason. You're like, aha, there's a black hole hiding in there. Yeah, yeah, and I also look for just smaller variations, which you can get from a black hole that has um, a disk of material feeding it, that disk will mm -hmm. have some turbulence and that will vary over time in a particular way. So if you monitor a galaxy for months or years, in some cases, you can see these 
tiny little variations from the center of the galaxy that indicate there's a, a black hole feeding there. Amazing. That's so cool. I, you know, this, these student questions are great, you know, and, and it just reminds me too, that uh, students really do do great science too. Yeah. You yourself made that monumental discovery back when you were a student too. Right. So, so we should really be not like ageist or, or uh, like thinking, oh, you know, feeling bad about ourselves if we're students saying, oh, I'm just a student, I can't get anything done, right? I mean, you're, you're talking about real high quality stuff. Oh, absolutely. Um, and I'm always in awe of the fantastic work that my graduate students and undergraduate students do. Um, and yeah, sometimes the questions that, that you get when you haven't been around forever are, are much better. <laughs> Now you're not allowed to say you you know when you haven't been around forever because <laughs> you you are way younger than me but I totally know what you're talking about like when I with my undergraduate students you know and they come in sometimes just first year students freshmen you know right out of high school a little bit and and even high school students sometimes and and they come in I'm going wow how did you do that when I was your age I couldn't have done like five percent of what you did. Uh, but that just keeps happening all the time. And, and so I, I'm a big fan of that. And and I also want to make sure everyone knows that uh, just because you are a student or because you're earlier in your career, it doesn't mean that um, you don't have an influence, right? It doesn't mean that you can't affect things. And we were talking about the, the space debris issue and, and the constellation, you know, satellite constellation issues. Uh, one person can make a difference. I mean, I, I hope you, Vivian, you know, will, will marshal the... Uh, wonderful energies of the young folks all around us to, to make sure that uh, the skies and the, and the space around earth are preserved and protected uh, for <laughs> years and decades and centuries to come. Yes, I hope so. <laughs> I think so too. Um, are there like uh, international organizations or, or any kinds of uh, ways that we can participate in that if we want to be part of uh, protecting us from this Kessler catastrophe or whatever it is? Uh, yeah, so the International Astronomical Union has um, a center for the, the protection of dark and, and quiet sky from satellite constellations. Um, the mm. American Astronomical Society has groups that are looking into this. Um, but I, I think one of the most important things that we need is for people to talk about it um, and make folks aware and to talk to our government representatives um, and let them know that we're concerned about uh, about these issues and that we'd like to see um, more regulation around that. So I, I think right now raising uh, the public consciousness um, is one of the most important things we can do. Yeah, that that is cool. Um, it, it's almost like an extension, right, of environmental issues. You know, we care about what's under the ocean, what's at the surface of the earth, uh, in our skies. Why not extend it further into space? It makes total sense, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Do you, so So, do you love the outdoors as much as I do and Alan does? Uh, I do. And I'm, I'm very lucky to live somewhere now that um, is... Uh, has really great access to uh, wild spaces. So I'm out in Eastern Washington, very close to uh -huh. the border of Idaho and the Idaho Panhandle. And there's um, lots of mountains that are accessible. And as a, a trail runner and frequent uh, hiker with my dog, <laughs> that's oh. been a really amazing way to um, 
to get outside and and see oh, some beautiful. Oh wow! So so trail runner, what is that? That's like like running up and down mountains just for fun and and not worrying that it like is a brutal thing on the cardiovascular system. <laughs> <laughs> Well, if you yeah, train for yeah. it's a bit better. It's not so bad. And trail runners <laughs> often will trail runners will often hike up steep hills. So there's hiking involved in trail running. Uh, okay. But okay. yeah, going out to to trails in the woods or in the hills or mountains, um, and uh, really getting out into nature and wow. And so yeah. so how, did is it polite for me to ask like how far you run in these things? I mean, is is it just a few miles at a time, especially if you're going up and down hills like crazy, or or is it like marathons? I've, I've gotten I've gotten into running ultra marathons, <laughs> so I sometimes what? will. Wow. Go what? <laughs> <laughs> um, I've Whoa. done I've done fifty mile race. That was the longest, um, but I've done fifty oh, k's, which are a little over thirty miles, um, and it's wow. wow. I like to think of it as a, a long day in nature. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. How long does it take to run 50 miles at a pop? Oh, well, it, it took me a long time. Uh, it took me about 15 hours, but there are folks who run it much faster. <laughs> no, that I 15 hours. I mean, I that's amazing. I, I would yeah. be lucky if I could stay outdoors for 15 hours. that's amazing Vivian that's awesome have you been have you been doing this kinds of running for a long time um not not since uh childhood I actually came to running fairly late in life um in Uh in grad school actually um and Uh I realized quickly that it was a very good um stress reliever and great for uh Helping with anxiety, and I had a friend in grad school who was running a 5K, and I was like, you know what, maybe I can run it with her. And so we we oh. did that together, and I just sort of worked up to longer and longer distances. Um, and one of the nice things about being an astronomer is that you often get to travel to amazing places, and yeah. so running one of my favorite ways to to explore a new city or something to do when I got to travel to Hawaii or Arizona. Um, to, oh. to really, to <laughs> That's really cool. Running in Hawaii, like up on the mountaintops, uh, were you using telescopes? I was at, uh, I was at sea level, but <laughs> I was using uh-huh. the tech telescope. But they don't actually have you observe from, from the mountaintop. You are uh, in a remote facility on the ground. <laughs> I see. But, but you got to run around when you weren't observing. And uh, that's yes. amazing. Now, 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 I have also been uh, at, on the Big Island in the past. Alan, have you been there? Did you? Yeah, I was briefly on the Big Island. I, I went to the Volcanoes National Park. Oh, that's right. That's right. Uh, I remember that now. Um, so, so that's just great. Wow. What pick an exotically memorable place that uh, you have run that you could like describe something super cool that you're always going to remember. I mean, just. It must, you must have had so many cool experiences. Well, uh, it was, my, my favorite memory um, was actually a, a long distance hike. I went to a conference um, in France and oh. presented my work. And then afterwards I went on a, a seven day long distance hike around Mont Blanc um, by myself. Oh. And um, I actually met one of my, my best friends. She also lives in Washington and we've stayed in touch since then. And 
Um, got to meet a lot of amazing people and being out there by myself was really special. Um, so that's probably my, my kind of favorite memory from a place I've gotten to travel for work. Wow. Super wow. cool. All right. Uh, got to put it on my bucket list now. Okay. Yes. Multi-day massive hike. <laughs> All right. We'll make it happen. Well, are, are you going to go back uh, to Europe or somewhere anytime soon to present more work? Uh, is there anything particular right now that you're working on that's especially like cool that's going to hit the news sooner rather than later, anything like that? Um, I have a couple of conferences that I'm planning to attend next year in Europe. Um, my, mm-hmm. my group is also doing some really amazing work. I'm part of a, a survey called the Young Supernova Experiment, which is another one of these time oh. domain surveys. And most uh-huh. of the people on the experiment are interested in finding supernovae and young exploding stars. But um, there's a few of us that are interested in using that data to find black holes. And I have um, some students working on that data and looking for these variable signatures of black holes. And we're finding some really neat stuff. So hopefully those results will be out soon. Wow. That sounds super awesome. I I wish we could talk more about that. You know, all we could talk about this all day, but we we are out of time and, and, oh, (laughs) it's so amazing. Vivian, will you come back sometime? I mean, it would be such a pleasure to keep talking about these things, this whole unexplored part of the black hole distribution in the universe. There must be so many neat things you can tell us. Please come back, okay? Anytime. And I think that the future is incredibly bright for intermediate mass black holes. Um, As we get more gravitational wave observatories and um, more time domain observing facilities, I think there will be a lot of really amazing discoveries in the future. So I would love to come back anytime and tell you about those. Oh, that sounds wonderful. If we want to find out more about what you do or, or get in contact with some of the things, is there some way we can do that? Or do you have a social media channel or a website or something we can look at? Yes. Uh, my website is just vivianbaldessari.com. Um, my email's on there. So you can uh, email me or um, you can reach me on Twitter at Twitter um, slash vbaldessari. Marvelous. All right. Well, it has been so much fun. Vivian, Dr. Vivian Baldessari of Washington State University, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It's been so much fun. Our co-host, Alan Liu, as always, what a pleasure. Alan, thank you so much. Yeah, you're welcome. Glad to be here. And for all of you in the audience, thank you so much for being with us today. If you like what you see and hear, please support us on Patreon. And as always, thank you for being a part of the Lunarverse.